You're listening to Radio Rounds on WWSU 106.9 FM, Dayton's Right Choice. I see portraits of white coats, I see long roads and dreams. I see portraits of white coats, long roads and dreams. Words are never enough unless you say what you Welcome to Radio Rounds, everybody. My name is Vash Kalra. I'm John Corker. And I'm Shami Das. We're so glad that you could join us here today for our season four premiere of Radio Rounds. It's certainly been a long summer for us, away from the airwaves, but we're glad to be back. We're all medical students here at the Wright State University Boonshoft School of Medicine, and Radio Rounds is a weekly talk show produced entirely by medical students here, and it is in fact the only radio program of its kind in the country. And each week we really make an effort to explore the qualities of humanism in medicine through a variety of different perspectives, those of world-renowned physicians, authors, students, patients, and healthcare leaders. We're certainly going to start that process today with our guest, whom I'm going to introduce in just a short while, and certainly all of our guests during Season 4. It's going to be a lot of fun. Also... We're joined in the studio today by second-year medical student Casey McCluskey, whom we've actually featured on Radio Rounds in the past. In fact, there's a video interview of her on our website, radiorounds.org, under the Special Features section. And that interview, Casey, was, of course, conducted under much different circumstances. Why don't you bring our listeners up to speed? Hey, everyone. Yes, I started uh, school with Avash and Company, uh, but at the end of my first year, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and uh, was able to bring my story to the airwaves. Um, I wasn't able to continue on to my second year, mm-hmm. but was able to pick up this year, and now I'm healthy, back on track, and ready to go. She's a great lady with a great story, and as the class of 2013, we're glad to have her, and especially here at Radio Rounds, so we're looking forward to hearing a lot more from her uh, throughout the, the rest of Season 4. Very inspiring indeed, and Casey's voice is just going to be one of the many medical student voices that you'll hear during the season. Of course, you'll hear myself and Shami and John and our regular co-host Lakshman Swami as well. And some some new voices, Casey, and also, in fact, in the studio today, we have a first-year medical student who just started her medical school career here at the Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine. Teresa Lee is going to join us occasionally during the season as well. Teresa, it's good to have you here. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. We're glad that you could be here as well. Now, we're going to start off today's show looking ahead a bit to what we can expect during this season of the show. We'll also catch up a bit since we've been off the air for the last three months. And then we'll introduce our featured conversation of the week with astronaut physician Michael Barrett. He's a mission specialist with the NASA Space Shuttle Program. And I can guarantee you 
that our conversation with him will be out of this world. Certainly lots of exciting guests lined up for season four, which is going to run for at least 18 episodes into December, and we'll introduce them each week, you know, physicians, patients, uh, all sorts of exciting segments and guests that you can look forward to. We're also going to highlight the third-year medical student experience, which I have just begun this past week, of rotating through the hospitals and beginning our clinical experience, so that's something to look forward to as well. But before we get started with Dr. Barrett, uh, it's been a little while since we were on the air together. We had a few boutique episodes over the summer between seasons three and four. We explored healthcare reform legislation and how that rubber will meet the road over the next four years. And uh, we also talked a little bit about what students can do if they don't get into medical school uh, the first time around. So some very interesting intra-season episodes, but ultimately... More often than not, we've not been in the studio and not been studying for medical school. Avash, I, uh, I understand you took a little quiz back in uh, in June. You want to tell us a little about yes, that? Yes, it was just a small little quiz back in June that uh, Shami and I both took. Step one of the USMLE board exam. And, you know, it's it's been a while now, and, and it's, it's distant in the rearview mirror, but uh, it's one of those things that we all have to go through as medical students. And it's, it's not as bad as everyone says. I'm glad it's over, certainly. But when I think back to the summer, I sort of focus on the month off that we had after boards. I went to Spain and Switzerland and had a really a grand old time before starting rotations last week. So it was a good summer. It's, it's good to be back here on Radio Rounds. Uh, John, you started uh, your MPH classes over the summer as well. I did. I'm in the five-year MD-MPH program, so I had an opportunity to take a few uh, public health classes over the summer. And then on the side, I taught in a summer program for uh, inner-city high school seniors and uh, first-year college freshmen who are interested in studying pre-med. Just taught a little bit of the basic sciences and did a little mentoring on on the transition to college and Mm pre-med. And and Shami, I understand that you were uh, privy to some extra special fireworks on the 4th of July this year. That's true. So going back to what Avash was saying, you know, I hope the first step is the hardest. Um, <laughs> but afterwards, I got married on July 4th, which is uh, the fireworks John was referring to. Uh, it was a blast. It was a blur. The summer, there was so much going on. But, um, you know, after two major hurdles of my life were over, I'm excited to see what's next. Yeah, it's funny, actually. Shami's Save the Date card that he sent out last spring uh, was a picture of, of him and his, his wife, Monsi, and fireworks all around and, and the big caption that said sparks will fly on the 4th of July. So that was their save the day, which I thought was pretty funny. So Shami, congratulations, of course. Thanks, guys. What we'd now like to do is share with you our conversation with Dr. Michael Barrett. And after we hear from him, we will discuss what he had to say. Board certified in internal medicine and aerospace medicine, Dr. Barrett began working for NASA in 1991. Since then, he spent time working as a NASA flight surgeon and in 2009 completed 199 days in space on board the Russian Soyuz rocket and the International Space Station. He's currently one of the five crew members assigned to the STS-133 mission, the next planned mission of the space shuttle program, scheduled to launch on the Discovery Shuttle to the International Space Station sometime in November 2010. It was certainly a wonderful conversation that Shami Lakshman and I had with him recently, and we were fortunate to speak with him during a rare moment where he was here with us on planet Earth. <laughs> we asked him to first tell us about his unique path that led from his physician training to actually traveling into space. Well, I mean, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think uh, for a lot of us in the space program, we find in common that we have some pretty diverse interests, and uh, most of us uh, have some kind of a specialty, either engineering, geology, a uh, few of us are medical, of course, but we all love flight and uh, ocean sciences, earth sciences, photography, and essentially discovering new stuff, and spaceflight really combines a lot of that uh, into one playing field, and 
you know, it's a, it's really living the dream in that regard because it just puts together so many things that we love as a career. From a medical standpoint, it's a little bit of practice, a little bit of research, uh, a lot of new uh, physiology to look at and a lot of new uh, technology, pretty much cutting-edge technology we have to field in that environment. So it's really the best of many, many worlds. Dr. Barrett, so were you one of those kids who uh, told everyone that they wanted to be an astronaut when they grew up? No, I was not. Uh, decidedly, uh, I was probably in career crisis from the time I was five until I was about 35 or so. And ironically, I think it was about 35 years old before I realized that I really wanted to throw my hat into that ring. By the time I uh, finished Wright State and came to NASA, my passion really was space medicine, and I saw that career mostly uh, firmly on the ground. Uh, however, <laughs> as we got working more with the long-duration flight program in Russia, especially with the MIR program, it got to be uh, fairly evident that if we're ever going to get somewhere, uh, going to bars or going places way beyond Earth, it's going to involve some long periods in zero gravity. And that's really what piqued my interest in long-duration flight, and that's what prompted me to throw my hat in the ring. So I would say I probably decided to become an astronaut at about the age of 35 or so. Dr. Barrett, you did your residency in aerospace training in aerospace medicine here. I feel like there's a gap between, you know, doing that residency and then actually ending up in space. Well, that's for sure. And to be real honest, I finished that residency never dreaming that I would end up in space myself. Uh, but I, I think that may be a little bit more the way of the future. It's kind of ironic in that I trained crews for years, and I told them what exactly was going to happen to their body when they got up into zero gravity, and, and I trained them how to use hardware and all the peculiarities of having to use that medical hardware in zero gravity, but I'd never really been there myself. And it came pretty clear that to be really effective in, in that chosen career specialty, which, of course, was space medicine, you really do have to go there yourself. And it really uh, was, like I say, a, an unexpected thing to do, but a, a career-fulfilling thing as well. I'm an astronaut, but I think first and foremost I'm a physician and, and my field is space medicine. I think we will see more of it. Uh, we did just select two new physicians in our last astronaut class. Uh, they're both from the UTMB fellowship program, so a bit of a, a different route here. But again, I, I think that people have seen value in uh, candidates trained specifically in space medicine. I think we do actually bring a lot to the program. It's really great to hear this, such a unique uh, you know, perspective and career path from you. I'm just wondering if you could sort of walk us through uh, how, how it works. I mean, what, what do you do while you're in the space shuttle as far as, uh, you know, if you could just sort of take us through a mission? Well, sure. I can uh, tell you more about the Soyuz and the shuttle, but if we have this conversation yet at the end of the year, I'll tell you all about the shuttle. Uh, I launched on the Russian Soyuz rocket, and I think a couple of things to really remember is that the International Space Station is just that. It's, it's very international. There are uh, five partner agencies and nearly 20 participating countries, and it's pretty much a bilingual station. Everybody has to be fluent in English and Russian. And you can, until recently, you could launch there two ways, either on the shuttle or on the uh, Russian Soyuz to become a long-duration member up there. For me, uh, I went over to the Russian side and trained as a flight engineer and launched on the Soyuz. So everything is pretty much in Russian there. All the displays, the uh, flight data file, as we call it, the instruction list, the checklists, and, of course, the language with the Mission Control Center. So you pretty much become a Russian cosmonaut when you launch on the Soyuz. It's a two-day trip, and uh, during that time, you kind of have a little downtime while you catch up with the station and get adapted to zero gravity. And uh, in two days, you dock and rendezvous with the station, and you open that hatch and you just get a big eyeful because the station is massive and complex, 
And that first day, I'll never forget of just seeing what my new home was going to be like for six months. After that, uh, you start two things. You start learning your routine, how you're going to work up there and, and be productive. And a lot of courses expected of you doing experiments and systems work. But the other thing you do is you, you really start your adaptation in earnest. And every system in your body does some change or undergoes some change as it adapts to zero gravity. And that uh, starts in earnest the, the uh, few minutes after you launch, but uh, it doesn't really end for several weeks. Uh, some people would say even a couple of months or so after you get up there before you're really adapted. And that was very interesting for me to go through, uh, kind of watching my motion control get better, learning how to exercise up there, you know, knowing that your blood volume is lower but very appropriate to uh, the environment that you're in. And then after about two or three months, you just feel great. You feel natural. You can fly accurately, deliver large masses on the dime, and uh, it's just really pleasurable to be up there once you've got the routine down and once you've gone through your adaptation. And I'll tell you that for me, at the end of that uh, nearly seven months up there, uh, I almost didn't want to come home. <laughs> it was just having such a good time and feeling great. Of course, you're up there as both an astronaut and as a physician. Uh, how do you split your time? I mean, are you doing a lot of clinical medicine, a lot of research, some of both? Well, from the standpoint of the program, I'm, I'm very much a generic mission specialist. And I was a, a flight engineer on the Soyuz. I was essentially trained as a pilot. Uh, and once you get up to the station, 99% of your work really is just as a generic mission specialist. Now, having the medical background means by default I'm a crew medical officer. So during my time up there, I was the lead crew medical officer, meaning if something did come up, I'd be the first line to, to treat, and then we'd coordinate with the flight surgeons on the ground. And if we had medical questions from the standpoint of the crew, such as how best to sleep shift for a coming event, then that was pretty much uh, me as the focal point for that. And that's what you expect from, from the crew medical officer on board. But I just have to emphasize that we work very closely with the flight surgeons on the ground who are also space medicine trained. And, uh, you know, you, can only, you only have to ask the flight docs who were assigned to our mission how incredibly busy they were to uh, get an idea of how much we really rely on their expertise as well. So uh, I can tell you that there's a lot of medical expertise that's really necessary on both ends of that pipeline. Sure. So is there always a physician up there? There is not. Um, right now we have a crew of six as our standard crew, and if you think about it, to do that you'd have to have one of every six mm -hmm. astronauts or cosmonauts a physician. Now we'd actually like to have that in a lot of ways. It gives us a comfort factor, but we just don't have that many in the crew or in the core. And uh, probably about a third of the time nowadays, we have a physician up there. And for any of our medical students out there, or pre-medical students, is there a need? As you mentioned, there's you know currently a shortage of uh, flight surgeons. Is there a need for flight surgeons? And you know what do they need to do to get involved to be in your position? Well, we're always going to need flight docs. There's no question about it. Now, some of that is sensitive to what the program is doing, and obviously the more vigorous the program, the, the greater the need, and there's a little bit of uncertainty right now. Uh, but I, I know that there's a, a bit of a thought that as long as you have a medical guy up there, you don't need necessarily flight surgeons on the ground. That That is an absolute myth. The more complicated the program, and ISS is very complicated, uh, the more medical issues that you're going to have, and you're always going to need a lot of people on the ground. And the thing that the flight surgeons do on the ground, aside from prepare you and your hardware and uh, kind of screen all the medical experiments, they do all that before flight, which is a tremendous amount of work. But during the flight, they serve as the medical representative for the program 
for mission control, for the people who manage the flight, for the people who manifest all the resources that launch. And, of course, they're the liaison, the direct liaison with the crew, and we talk privately with them pretty frequently. So the need for those guys, as long as we're flying people, is, is going to be pretty solid. Could you tell us a little bit about the medical uh, situations that might arise on the space station that, that require your expertise? That's a great question. Just by virtue of being in space, and uh, in particular on, on a low-Earth orbiting platform, there is kind of a list of occupational hazards, things that you see fairly frequently, so you're always going to be ready for that. Foreign bodies in the eye, aspiration of foreign bodies, because there's no gravity and nothing settles out. So it's not uncommon that people kind of fly into something. And uh, we have all sorts of ways, some that are unique to zero gravity, to flush a foreign body out of the eye. Uh, occasionally people aspirate a little particle, especially when we're moving lots of stuff back and forth and releasing particles. And you do a little bit of coughing up there, so that's definitely one thing. Space motion sickness, uh, fortunately, lasts just a few days, but, but you see that fairly commonly in over half the folks who fly. And we have medications that we use to treat that. And the uh, main thing is you really want to keep people hydrated. Uh, back pain is very common, actually, in space, and probably due to stretching of the interspinous ligaments as your, your vertebrae, the distance between them increases as your discs imbibe fluid and never get compressed uh, like they do in, on Earth when you get up in the morning. So we, we do see some pain associated with that. Uh, we treat that with non-steroidals. And then uh, basically congestion that goes along with the fluid shift up to your head. Uh, a lot of people have headaches. A lot of people have trouble sleeping. And uh, CO2 concentrations can rise locally if you're in a place that's not too well ventilated. And those could cause headaches and uh, uh, you know hyperpia and whatnot. So, I mean, there's a suite of things that you, you're always kind of thinking about that are associated very deliberately with spaceflight. And then you're always worried about some background medical problem, a background illness, such as you know, cardiovascular disease. Six or seven months is a big slice out of someone's life, and we do our best to certify them healthy, but uh, certainly things can arise during that time period and have uh, in orbit in the past, so we worry about those. And then, of course, minor trauma and uh, injuries. So there's a lot of things you need to be ready for. Dr. Barrett, I'm also wondering if, uh, if maybe there's been any sort of medical emergency that you've had to deal with while in space, and if not, if there are certain specific medical emergencies that you've, you've you know, had to spend a lot of time training for in case they do come up. Well, from a training standpoint, though, we, we certainly train for uh, acute onset coronary disease just because from a statistical standpoint, that's something that you're potentially going to see. In our population, we scream like crazy, of course, for all the risk factors out but, uh, you know, the average age is in the mid to late 40s for the people that we're flying on station right now. And there has been new onset coronary disease in space in the last few decades, certainly, um, in long-duration flights. So not on ISS, but uh, that has been seen. So we train pretty heavily to handle an acute coronary event. So we have an AED on board. Uh, we have one round of uh, cardiac drugs, and we have a small respirator, and we have a plan for uh, evacuating somebody, uh, you know, so that's probably our worst-case scenario that we're concerned about. We train for that. The other thing that we worry about is toxic inhalation just because of the coolants and propellants and various other things up there that are quite irritating and damaging to the lungs. So uh, we, we train for airway handling and respiratory support and, again, evacuation if need be. Now, fortunately, we've not really had anything quite that dire in real flight. Nothing uh, acute and uh, certainly no arrest scenarios or anything like that. Uh, but there has been probable kidney stone in uh, the Russian program maybe 25 years ago or so. 
and there are things about spaceflight that might predispose you to that. So that's another thing we get ready for. We uh, want to be able to administer pain meds and intravenous fluids and whatnot. So those are examples of some of the things that we target our training and our hardware towards. And I'm sure some of our listeners right now are wondering, what does an exact evacuation entail? Well, it's a bad day if you have to evacuate, no question about it. Um, but if you do, there's always enough seats going down uh, for every crew member on board. And right now, the vehicle to get you down would be the Soyuz. Each Soyuz is a small capsule that holds three people. So anytime you have more than three people on board, you have at least two Soyuz spacecraft up there. And um, that's essentially how we'd bring someone down. If one person out of a crew of six became ill or injured, and we determined that he would be best served on the ground, and we determined that that person was up to making the trip, which is quite a sporty little trip uh, coming down on the Soyuz with a kind of a bang onto the ground at the end. Well, then we would actually take half the crew, all three crew members that would be assigned to that Soyuz, and bring them all down uh, for the sake of that one ill or injured person. Now, like I said, the Soyuz is, is a bit of a bang. You're going to get uh, a little bit over four Gs coming down if everything's normal, and uh, you thump down in the steps of Kazakhstan, and you're met by a search and rescue team. So uh, it's not quite like calling 911 and taking the ambulance to Miami General or anything like that. However, it's a very reliable ride, and uh, it's a very tried and true vehicle, so you know that you're going to make it to the ground. And you mentioned that you're going to be on the space shuttle departing in September. For our listeners, that's the last space shuttle to depart for the National Space Station or the Space Shuttle Station program. Well, how do you feel about that? Well, that is correct. I First of all, um, I was very shocked and very honored to be assigned to the last mission. And ironically, that assignment came while I was still up on the International Space Station. So before I even landed, I was assigned to my next flight, which was just a, a tremendous feeling to have. Uh, obviously, it's a great honor to be assigned to the last mission. And, um, you know, very bittersweet, I think. Uh, being on the shuttle, which is just a magnificent vehicle, and seeing the station is something that I've, I've always wanted to do. Uh, you don't get much of a view of it from the Soyuz, but from the shuttle, it's just panoramic as you uh, approach to dock. And, and I'm prepared to be overwhelmed, I think, when I see that thing and uh, to land with it. And I have a tremendous crew. Uh, the uh, other five crew members that I'm uh, flying with are just a great group, and two of them actually flew with me on station. Well, Dr. Barrett, obviously we've talked about uh, your, you know, your work as a physician and as an astronaut, and I'm just sort of wondering as we sort of uh, head to the close of the interview, if you could tell us what's tougher, going through medical school or becoming a NASA astronaut? <laughs> well, let's see. I would say that, uh, boy, becoming an astronaut is very much like going to grad school again. So in some ways, I look at my life as just kind of a composite, a, a quilt patchwork, if you will, of going from one level of training to the next, college to medical school to residency to residency again. Uh, being a flight surgeon was a very steep learning curve, and, and going to the astronaut corps, you're essentially in grad school for two years, and then you get out and do practical stuff. So uh, it's very similar to going to medical school, except you're a little bit older and perhaps a little bit wiser and kind of put things in context perhaps a little bit better. Uh, medical school was a great time, and I would just tell people to really enjoy that. Uh, the, the slog is great. Uh, the, the friendships you make there are great. And I'm always going back to my books to look up stuff that I learned in medical school and just can't seem to remember exactly when I need it. So uh, believe it or not, most of those little factoids you learn could actually serve you well later in life. And are there any planned trips to the moon as a family vacation? <laughs> <laughs> well, we got one planned. 
but uh, we'll <laughs> see. We're going to reunion up there in 2050. Well, Dr. Barrett, it was a pleasure having you on the show. A great honor for us, and best of luck uh, to your travels to space. All right. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you guys, too. That was Dr. Barrett, of course, a really great guy and a fun to talk to. We enjoyed sharing that conversation with you. Dr. Barrett, you know, it's, it's interesting, the issues that he talked about, uh, the problems that arise in space. And I was reading actually this morning that three to four month trip to space results in such bone problems that on, when you get back to Earth, it takes up to two to three years just to regain that strength. You know, you, you basically experience temporary osteoporosis, which, uh, you know, you regain that, the problems. But I mean, it's, it's really pretty interesting that two to three years it takes. And he was up there for six months. So you can imagine. Yeah, Casey and I were just talking about all the different changes that occur physiologically in your body. And, you know, some of the things that we had never been, I guess, created for or, you know, we had never experienced in our evolution um, and now we're experiencing in space. It's really interesting. Small sacrifice, I think, to be able to, to practice medicine in space, though, uh, to be out there. What, what a great experience. I mean, his stories uh, of being up there. Uh, after he acclimatized to being in zero gravity and just working up there. Uh, what, a, what an interesting environment. I was just glad to hear that uh, after specializing in so much, you know, so many things and that he admits to still having to look things up, it uh, mm-hmm. takes a little pressure off me to have to remember everything that we're learning right now. And one one thing that we do want to correct, you know, when we spoke with him, uh, at that time, the mission that he was scheduled to take to this International Space Station was scheduled as the last space shuttle mission. Currently, his mission, which is scheduled to depart on November 1st of this year, is the second to last mission. And the final scheduled mission is actually going to take off in February 2011. So either way, you know, it's uh, he'll be there for a little while. And it's pretty exciting to be one of the named as one of the crew members. And he was actually, you know, it's interesting, he was actually named as the crew member for the shuttle while he was in the space station on his last trip. So he knew, you know, before he got back that he'd be heading back up soon. So, of course, that was our interview with Dr. Barrett. Thanks again to him for joining us. We want to, of course, mention that the production of Radio Rounds is made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage, which was created by the American Medical Association Insurance Agency. The program has very unique provisions, including a $200,000 student loan payoff provision, student and resident occupation, definitions, global emergency travel service, and newly added this year, a stress and wellness program. About one in three medical students in the U.S. are already covered by the AMA-sponsored MedPlus Advantage Disability Income Plan. For those of you covered by this plan and that are graduating, you have a small window of opportunity, about 31 days uh, to be exact, in which to continue this important coverage in residency. You can click the MedPlus Advantage link on our site, uh, www.radiorounds.org, and go to Graduating Medical Students for more information. We'd like now to wrap up. Of course, it was a great episode to start our Season 4 premiere of Radio Rounds. Next week, it's going to be really interesting. Uh, recently here at the Wright State, we had our new first years join us, and a white coat ceremony was held this past Sunday here in downtown Dayton, Ohio. It's a great ceremony that they do here for Wright State, uh, you know, certainly at medical schools across the country as well. But uh, the first years get the, to put on their nice, crisp white coat for the first time. And we had John, Shami, and Lakshman there on site doing field reports, basically interviews with the students, with the parents. And we're going to air some of that next week. We'll also have some first years in the studio sharing their feelings on starting medical school after such a long road to get to this point. Yeah, it was actually a really exciting experience to be there interviewing the students and then trying to remember, you know, three years ago for us, two years for two years for you, John, almost, 
um, or actually one year now, the excitement and enthusiasm in which you you know start med- medical school and your medical training. Um, and so we'll be sharing some of those stories with you next week. We're going to have some upcoming video as well featuring thoughts of medical students about the transition from classrooms and lectures to patients and the wards. And you can find that on our website, www.radiorounds.org. Of course, all the information on the show is there. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. You can just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds. We'll have a podcast of each episode available there as a free download. You can search for us on Twitter and follow us there and join our Facebook group as well. We also want to quickly mention that Radio Rounds is proudly sponsored by the Student Doctor Network, online at studentdoctor.net. This Sunday on SDN, Drowning in Student Debt, a case study on the impacts of student debt on a newlywed couple with professional degrees. Thanks to everyone who was part of today's episode. Of course, our executive producer, Shami Das. Casey, it was great to have you in the studio. Oh, thanks for having me. And, of course, our other co-host, Lakshman Swami, who's been here checking our audio levels during the show as well. Thanks for joining us. Join us next next week, Sunday, for our White Coat Ceremony episode. Of course, that's 12 p.m. Eastern Time, or you can listen anytime you'd like to our iTunes podcast. Until then, have a great week. My name is Avash Kalra. I'm John Corker. And I'm Shami Das. And one day, we'll, we'll be, be your, your doctors. doctors. Here come the radio Welcome to Radio Rounds.